Welcome to this episode of the Religious Studies Project, sponsored by SENSAM, the Center for the Study of Apocalyptic and Millenarian Movements. They've got a full program for their AI and Apocalypse Conference, but you can book onto that by going to Eventbrite and searching for SENSAM, C-E-N. S-A-M-M. And at the conference, they're going to be hosting a major installation on decoding the apocalypse. Uh, and this is planned to coincide with their conference in June. Um, so their next one, which is on Apocalypse in Art, the Creative Unveiling. So they're looking for papers for that. So do check out our website or the Sensam website for that. But now on with the usual podcast. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm okay, David. I'm actually feeling pretty good right now. 2018 started relatively well research-wise. Check in with me in another week or two, and I'll maybe be right back down in the dumps. But at the moment, feeling up. Oh, yeah. How about yourself? Good for you. Um, yeah, doing good. But I'm about to start teaching, and that's when time gets squeezed. So for the next seven, eight uh, episodes, if I seem unusually grumpy and terse, you'll know why. <laughs> From these two blokes feeling quite chipper, it's over to another two blokes. It's Hans van Eigen speaking with Chris Ransford on God and Mathematics. Take it away, Hans. Hello, I'm Hans van Eigen. I'm uh, with Chris Ransford to discuss his latest book, God and the Mathematics of Infinity. Uh, welcome, Chris. So, could you tell us a little bit about your uh, project, about the book? What was your motivation behind it? Sure. Good morning first, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. This book, God and the Mathematics of Infinity, is actually part of a trilogy of books exploring the nature of reality. The motivation, of course, is that because we are in the 21st century, and there's absolutely zero consensus in society as to what it is, this reality that we live in. So you have, at the one end of the spectrum, you have people who still do believe in what is variously called uh, materialism or physicalism. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have fundamentalist religious people. And that's very often, of course, the truth has got to lie in between somewhere. But all my background, educational background, has demonstrated to me that Mathematics is an extremely powerful tool to analyze the truth. And I have to immediately actually qualify this. A very large section, a very large section of mathematics cannot be used to pronounce anything about external reality simply because those parts of mathematics are predicated on axioms, which is foundational statements that are accepted as face value, but that have not been proven. And on the basis of those axioms, whole branches of mathematics are built, such as geometry, let's say, and they are internally consistent, but they cannot express anything about the ultimate truth of reality. On the other hand, the most important, in my view, and in other mathematicians' view, part of, of mathematics is number theory. And numbers are actually not predicated on axioms, by on, but on definitions. In other words, one and one is called two, and that's all there is to it, it's a definition. And when you define one plus one is two, then very soon 
you have natural numbers and then you have rational numbers and then you have irrational numbers and then you have infinities and all of a sudden from the mere definition of two lions being two lions as opposed to being one lion a whole menagerie of very powerful numbers is born out of which you can analyze meaningfully analyze reality and one of my observations about say some religions and some atheistic people is that their pronouncements are totally susceptible to mathematical analysis based on numbers and then you have you have a number of conclusions that you can draw from that and for instance what religious people maybe do not quite understand about a mathematical analysis of god it is actually not a mathematical analysis of god per se it's a mathematical analysis of the consequences that flow from the attributes that are ascribed to godhood in other words i'll give you an example if you define god as having infinite attributes then the consequences of those infinite attributes are totally susceptible to analysis through the mathematics of infinity and then you can conclude certain things and you can conclude that certain things can possibly be and certain things cannot possibly be at all and i am observing in the current world a debate between let us call them either religious or spiritual types on the one side and the atheistic or materialist people on the other side what i observe somewhat unfortunately is that more and more the materialistic side seems to be winning the argument and they win the argument for a number of reasons and all of those reasons are actually susceptible once again to mathematical analysis and one of the reasons why they win is because they conflate spirituality the essence of what maybe religions have been trying to talk about for for centuries with the trappings of religions meaning all the sometimes very silly trappings such as singing hymns and reliance on ancient texts of literature and everything all things that actually epiphenomena of religion but do not touch the core and so the analysis by mathematics will enable you to first of all to avoid things that are frankly quite infuriating in religion such, such as the demand on the part of a number of big religions for leaps of faith leaps of faith in this day and age in the 21st century are not acceptable and if a demand for such is maintained educated people intelligent people and more and more people in the 21st 22nd and so on century are going to leave religion because in the modern age this is not an acceptable way of doing things and especially leaps of faith are totally amenable to mathematical analysis and I'll give you an example some leaps of faith will lead to a contradiction in terms and something has got to give way and some are not for instance let us take the example of a acceptable leap of faith that would be in in a totally non-religious terms that would be the leap of faith of the person who buys a lottery ticket a lottery ticket would have one chance in some million 
you know, odds of gaining the jackpot, but it's not impossible. So in that sense, the leap of faith is acceptable. But the leap of faith that says that an infinite entity can be second-guessed by people who have limited IQs, a limited lifetime on Earth and everything, the mathematics shows you that's such a contradiction in terms. It is not possible that something infinite be properly processed and properly comprehended by a receptacle that is finite. So we have to analyze all the, those things. And the other side of the aisle is exactly likewise susceptible to mathematical analysis. And I'll give you an example and then I'll uh, give you the floor. But the ongoing argument that everything is materialist and so on is a bankrupt argument because theoretical physics demonstrates that matter ultimately doesn't exist. Ultimately, matter is the vibrations of the quantum vacuum, of the vacuum, and matter reduces to vibrations of nothingness. So, and that's the mathematics, that's a fact. So people predicate their reasoning on simply the fact that what you see is what you get and that matter is all there is, are demonstrably wrong. And I will illustrate this by telling you about the latest book I've read. I've just read a book by a well-known philosopher, and one-third, one, one big third of the book is given over to analyzing physicalism. And that illustrates to me the absolute necessity to use mathematics. If that philosopher, instead of philosophizing and looking at the pros and cons, and eventually, after one full third of the book, not settling the issue, had actually used mathematics instead, the mathematics is, and the, the theoretical physics is, that matter is vibrations of vacuums, and that hence, therefore, matter cannot be a fundamental feature of reality or fundamental trait of reality and that therefore we have to move beyond matter to try to understand the fundamentals of reality and that to me illustrates the absolute necessity to bring mathematics into reasoning Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, um, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even £1 a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. Okay. I want to get, get into the point of um, not being able to second-guess God's intention, God's commands. You're probably aware that will be a far stretch for many religious believers. But I was wondering, doesn't that exclude the whole concept of revelation in a way? Or what do you do with people who claim to well, have such knowledge? Well, it, okay, that's fair enough. But 
it does to to a very large extent and let me tell you why the issue we have with most religions virtually all but uh, this we can qualify is that they rely for the message if there is such a thing the message of the godhead not specifying further who that godhead is they rely on words uh, be they oral words be they texts and the fundamental issue with that we have to ask ourselves is human language a capable vehicle a possible vehicle to convey the words of a godhead and mathematically as i will just show there are at least four separate reasons why it is not the proper vehicle it's not the proper vehicle for, for at least four independent mathematical reasons and the bottom line of those reasons is the human language is so inherently limited so we could have a, an ideal human language that it cannot properly convey godlike thoughts because godlike thoughts are by definition infinite and they reflect a certain mode of thinking that cannot be expressed by the vehicle of a human language and let me give you if you if that's okay let me give you very quickly four reasons the first one is very simple and it's it's agreed to by all religions including religions of the book out there it is what is called in mathematics tarski's theorem or the undefinability theorem which very simply states that the proof of any statement cannot be possibly made from inside the language that makes the statement it's very easy to understand if i tell you this car is blue i cannot prove from prove from inside the english language that the car is blue and i need external corroboration which is quite obvious the second proof is a little bit more subtle but it's exactly the same thing as the mercator projection in map making in map making if you want to degrade by one dimension you massively warp and distort the map that you try and convey if you look at the map of the world on a mercator or for that matter any other projection the point which is the pole becomes actually as long as the equator so something rips when you it's like if you were going to flatten half an orange upon a table something rips and by the process of ripping you sustain a huge loss of meaning of the data that being conveyed look at any mercator map on the wall greenland is actually less than a fourth than a quarter of the size of australia any map of the world shows greenland bigger than australia and so on and so forth and that's just by going one down one dimension if you go by two dimension you would have to to project onto a segment and all would be lost now let me give you an example with language if you're going to want to say uh, using for instance language you're going to want to translate in normal language einstein's words that uh, space and time are the same thing you're going to write a book about einsteinian physics and you're going to to entitle the book space time but that's wrong you have actually prioritized time 
sorry, space over time by writing space time. And now you try the other way around, time space, same problem. And finally, you heat upon the solution, which is to go up by one dimension and write it in a loop. And when you write space time in a loop, you have no priority, no first and no second element. And by going up two elements, you have solved the problem of something that you couldn't properly express in the English language because of its linearity. And to demonstrate that this linearity is true, try to tell your publisher over the phone that you write space-time at the title of your book. You can't. You have to add metadata, which is you have to explain how to do it because the language doesn't allow you to do that. And if you are talking of an infinite mind expressing godlike thoughts, you multiply this by infinity. You're not having uh, 2D down to 1D. You're having infinity D down to 1D, which is the language that is used in ancient texts. Now, let me give you um, a third reason. There is a well-known phenomenon which is called emergence. Emergence is that whenever any constituent element to something becomes very big, not necessarily infinite, then you have all kinds of totally unpredictable phenomena that start happening. And when, let alone, when things become infinite, when things become infinite, then you have a, a plethora of inherently unpredictable phenomena that start happening. So for an IQ of 100 or 200 or 300, trying to second guess or to understand an IQ of equivalent of infinity, simply the simple phenomenon of emergence cannot let you do that. And if really you had a, I hate the word prophet, but if you had a soothsayer or a translator of what the Godhead says, he or she would fall victim to the dimensional issue that I was talking on earlier. So you cannot get out of it. And the last element, uh, there are more, but the last element I would like to, to quote here, a lot, uh, apart from the undefinability, uh, undefinability theorem, apart from the dimensional issue, which is uncrackable, apart from the phenomenon of emergence, which you cannot possibly predict or foretell, there's also the phenomenon very often in human religion of circular reasoning. In other words, and to caricature it, it's true because the Bible says it's true. And I've seen that in my classes, in my Sunday classes. I have heard a lot of those arguments. And I find it a pity that we're still there in the 21st century because that gives ammunition to the Richard Dawkins set, if you like, who deny any spirituality, even though there's overwhelming proof out there that there is such a thing as spirituality. There is such a thing as higher dimensions and everything. Okay. I want to get into uh, the conclusions you draw in the book about uh, God's attributes. You say Some are quite classical, some widely accepted, at least in Abrahamic religion, like uh, all-knowingness, almightiness, but some are quite surprising. Could you maybe elaborate on those, those surprising Surprising uh, well, conclusions you draw? Which one uh, would, would you would uh, you The one, surprising? for example, about uh, God being present in ev everything. Yeah, that's, that's exactly, that's very good. That's exactly another, for me, absolutely essential proof that the use of mathematics 
is indispensable. The debate between what was called immanence or transcendence has been a debate that has gone on for a very long time. The, it has never been settled by theologians, and you have two schools of thought so in, in all religions, something that God is everywhere, and something that, uh, if God exists, that God is in a privileged realm somewhere, a heaven, and only forays into lesser realms or other areas uh, when needed. The problem is you can analyze that mathematically and on the basis of theoretical physics. And the anal analysis is not entirely obvious because you have to analyze time first. How could, if God is not present anywhere, then if God would want to cast an eye on something that happened, he would have to, or it would have to go back in time, and there are all sorts of issues. But the demonstration that you get from that is that there is a stark mathematical contradiction between saying that a God would be omni, uh, all-powerful and, and omniscient, in other words, uh, all-knowing, and the fact that he would have godly attributes. It would actually negate the godly attributes. So you cannot have it both ways. He, the, the, the possibility of God, which mathematics itself, for reasons I'll go into in a minute, cannot actually determine, if there is a God, then that God must, if it is going to be divine, in other words, if it's going to actually have the attributes that are reputed to be its attributes by religions and spirituality that actually constitute its very essence of being God, its very godhood, then it, it must be present everywhere. And if you speculate, there are ways that this is totally compatible with the current world. I believe that the image of a personal God it's not possible. For all sorts of reasons, it's not a bearded man in the sky or some equivalent of that. It's not possible. But what is possible is that it's a higher dimensional mind that actually moves through space-time in such a way as creating something that is not, not entirely circumscribed, and there would be reasons for that. Surprisingly, something that very few non-mathematicians appreciate fully, you can actually grow infinity. Infinity per se is not simply infinity. It's something you can grow. You can actually grow infinity. And if you do have an infinite God, the, put yourself in its shoes for two minutes and look what happens. You have basically two solutions. You can just soar upon nothingness and everything. The cost of that is that you are going to become a static god, and if that happens, you are actually going to lose some of your divinity, because what you're going to become is a curator of something that is becoming a museum universe. You know the past, you know the future, you know the extension of, of space-time everywhere, and nothing ever fundamentally changes, so you are infinite, but you're an infinite museum curator because nothing changes. So your option out of that and the thing that will preserve and uphold your divinity, your godhood, is actually to have a universe that can grow. And the universe that can grow is not a trivial proposition. You will find if you analyze 
analyze in certain ways, you will find that you cannot grow it in certain dimensions, that you can certainly grow it in a, in a three-dimensional uh, space-time or a plus-one-dimension time, but there are certain dimensions that are close to you. And, and then we have a reconcilable image of spirituality and uh, science. And this is the only way that I see, at least, the only proper way where we can reconcile the two. And all of a sudden, sciences that were banished, such as studies, as you may be aware, there's a lot of studies on altered states of consciousness and so on and so forth. And all those studies are poo-pooed by modern science because they're all afraid that it's going to link them to religions with funny hats, with judgmental isms, with uh, association with books that were basically the Stephen King novels of 2000 years ago, at a time where there was no understanding of anything, at a time where very, very few people knew how to write, and they wrote what they could. They thought that earthquakes were the acts of God, they thought that diseases were the acts of God, etc., etc. And to become associated with that, of course, it the surefire killer in careers of science, as it should be. But the problem is we're stuck there right now. We're stuck in this rut where we either have the ISIS people or where we have the Richard Dawkins, and both of them have areas that they call no-go. It is haram, or whatever the word is, in certain religions to ask questions. It's forbidden. And it's not, it's almost all of them. But science does kind of the same thing. When confronted with things it cannot explain under the current science, scientists sweep it under the rug as well. And take all the conflicts on Earth today. They fundamentally all arise from that. And we're not talking something that is not massive. We have mass conflicts. We have people who suffer immensely, like all those girls subjected to female uh, circumcision because of ancient texts and everything. And we seem to be stuck in this discourse. And we have very many people who have experienced something that they can't explain. And the explanations of Richard Dawkins just do not wash with them. So mm -hmm. what do they do? They go back to those who say they know better, even though they, they do not, and that perpetuates the cycle of, and the standoff where we are stuck right now, this standoff. And what I'm trying to say, we need to move forward. This is the 21st century. We need to free ourselves from spiritual reliance of, on ancient texts. And there's no justification why those ancient texts should be deemed as being the cornerstones of modern-day religions. Absolutely not. And they, you can prove that they're not suitable for the job. But we should also move from where that leads science to, which is wholesale rejection of whole areas of human knowledge, and we're stuck. We're not moving, which is the reason why I wrote this book, which is my second book in the, the understanding of the nature of reality. And again, if you believe in God, you believe in a totally different reality than if you don't. If you believe in, in materiality, in, as in Aristotelian physicalism, then you believe in a form of the universe that other people do not believe to. 
And the whole point of the book is to say the force and the strength of mathematics is that it can actually analyze that intelligently and enable progress. Just that we're running out of time here, time flies. So okay. I got one last question, because it will be on many people's mind, uh, the existential question. You uh, refrain from answering it in the book. So you yes, reach a limit uh, that there, will you be say. part of my next book. The, uh, uh, very quickly, I'll, I'll, I'll try to tell you where I come from. 300 years ago, we didn't know where earthquakes, where lightning, etc. came from. We had no idea. We didn't understand atoms, electricity, tectonic plates, microbes. We still very close to that. The cutting edge of science has to do with wave functions and, and things like this, things that are not very well known now, but that will actually further our understanding. And in the book, I'm quoting actually somebody who's uh, atheistic, who's a very well-known university professor in the US, who says we must define God in a certain way uh, because, and she explains it, and I explain part of it in the book. The question, do you believe in God, is meaningless. You have to define your terms. You have to define what God is. And my next book will try to answer this in the light of modern science. And we have to shed our preconceptions on everything. And I think we can actually come close to a definition that would be acceptable to most people and in which we would say, well, yes, this does exist and this can be construed as actually being a godhead, but it has to be redefined and it's got nothing to do with the uh, personal god of Abrahamic religions, it's got, but it has to do with the fact that there is something there that we're not seeing at the moment, and with the fact that to appreciate that and to begin to, to use an old phrase, to touch the face of God, we have to have enhanced our knowledge, not simply to atoms, electricity, tectonic plates and bacteria, but a lot more. And this is what science worldwide is in the process of doing. It will take us, I believe, another 200, 300, 400 years, but we'll get there. We shouldn't jump the gun by saying we know already. No, we're still in the process of building up our arsenal of knowledge tools that will let us put our arms around the concept. Okay, thank you. I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Uh, uh, well, my pleasure. Thank you very much thank for you your time. Thank you so much for... Uh, I, I hope that was contributive and uh, I look forward to uh, hearing some feedback from you. Okay, thank you. Thanks so much to Chris and Hans there for a really interesting interview and uh, something that we haven't covered very much here on the RSP, which is strange to say, given this is like episode... We're well over 250 now, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's officially over 250, but unofficially it's nearer... 270 or something oh wow uh we we should really stop shouldn't we no listeners it's fine we're, we're not going to stop just now um in fact you can even come back next week we've got a, a oh, returning really? yeah yeah a returning interviewer tom white he spoke a few weeks ago he is going to be speaking with will sweetman on a richer history of the term hinduism um so again a topic that you would expect a podcast like this to have maybe touched on a lot, but Hinduism's a, an area undercovered on our podcast, and again, taking that sort of uh, sort of critical historical approach to the, the notion, 
um, of Hinduism. No, actually, he's he's arguing against it. He's arguing against the critique that the terms we use to classify religions, including the term religion, are modern inventions. So he's actually going to be challenging some of those arguments that we have. What? I know. I get him off, off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, very much looking forward to that. And if you're interested in that sort of thing, I've got a number of interviews on that topic. I'm thinking particularly of the one um, with Brent Nongbury on the before religion. Yeah. So I'm going to say that Will Sweetman is a 20th century invention. There's no uh, history of him before the, the 20th century. So come back next week to hear about that. That's, you know, just a shout out to our sponsors you hear about um, every, every podcast, but the British Association for the Study of Religions, who've also got their call for papers out for their joint conference with the Irish Society that's happening in September. Do check that out. But also Nasser, North American Association, and the International Association for the History of Religions. And also, if you get our email updates, or if you would like to get them, uh, remember the Australian Association uh, sponsored those, so thanks to all of our sponsors. Absolutely, and uh, also we should mention Sen Sam again, who sponsored this week's episode. I think we've run out of things to say, well, things that would be interesting anyway. Well, um, nothing that we really say is of interest <laughs> to anyone except ourselves, uh, maybe Carol Cusack, if she's still listening. But yeah, uh, thanks Carol for listening, and yeah, thanks everybody else for listening. Two. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett, and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget, you can support the project using our Amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links, or by donating at patreoncom projectrs And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals.